so the way that this that this handout is laid out, there's a column that's got the scripture verses from the vision, okay? Then a column that's got the scripture verses from the interpretation that I've tried to line up. This is similar to our, our grids that we've been doing. Then the next two columns are where we're going to compare Antiochus Epiphanes and the Antichrist to those prophecies and decide for ourselves what we think. All right. So last week we spent a lot of time going through who Antiochus Epiphanes was so that we have some basis for understanding this. We already have a good feel for who the Antichrist is because he's that 11th horn that we've been studying in Daniel. So let's start, um, if you open your Bible to Daniel chapter 8, we're starting in verse 9. And just like we did last week, we're going to combine the pieces that are the vision and then we'll, we'll skip a few verses and go pick up the piece of the interpretation that's correlated to that. Verse 9 says, Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. If you, you know, remember the vision that Daniel saw, he, yeah, he saw, he saw the goat with the single horn in the middle, which was the Greek empire. And this verse comes right after that, saying, out of one of them, after he talks about how the Greek empire broke up into four pieces. Now, if you were just looking at verse 9, you might say that this small horn or the king that's going to arise would come out of the Greek empire during the time of the Greek empire. But we have some other clues in here. One of the clues is in verse 17 and verse 19. Okay. In verse 17 and verse 19... What we see is that this, somebody read verse, those two verses because I haven't flipped open to mine. 17. Uh-huh, 17. I came near to where I was standing and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the end of time. Okay. So, and there was more. Verse 19. 19, and he said, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. All right, so this is Gabriel has come across to Daniel, and he said, this is, I'm going to tell you what this vision is about, but I'm going to give it to you on a bumper sticker, okay, right now. And the bumper sticker version is, it pertains to the time of the end. He said that two times, okay, in, just in the space of, Three verses, he said twice, pertains to the time of the end. And, and he said, it will occur at the final period of the indignation, which we talked about last week as being another phrase for the great tribulation. Those last three and a half years. So this, this angel, I think, is very clear about talking about when this vision is going to occur. Okay. Now, if we look at our grid on um, comparing Antiochus Epiphanes and the Antichrist, you can see verse on the very first line that verse 17 and 19 are under the interpretation because it's part of what the angel was saying. And then we think about it. Does that fit? Does just those two phrases fit Antiochus Epiphanes? Obviously not. Obviously not. He he he's dead. <laughs> It's, and we know the Great Tribulation has not yet occurred. Now, does that fit the Antichrist? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We know that that is when he comes to power. So as we go through today, I've put X's where I think it, Antiochus Epiphanes doesn't fit. Okay. Checks where I think it does. And the same for the Antichrist. X is where I think it doesn't fit. Checks where I think it does. Now, you all have pins. And if you disagree with me, you just mark right over that thing. Okay? Because I'm just presenting me and my humanity and what I believe I'm reading in the scripture. But I want you all to understand and own this yourself. Okay? So let's talk about verse 9, which is on row 2. I've numbered the rows here for you. Okay, so on row two, we we go back and we look at just the very first part of of 
verse 9 that says, out of one of them, meaning out of one of those four Greek kingdoms. Okay. Then we can skip down for more information to verses 22 and 23 of the interpretation. Let me flip to Daniel real quick. I had my Bible marked in the wrong place. Uh huh. We're still in chapter 8. We're just flipping back and forth inside of, of, of chapter 8. And the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms, which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. Okay, so verse 22 says, four horns that replaced the one that was broken off, so this is obviously still talking about those four general, represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation and will not have his same power. Okay, but then if we look at verse 23, It says, in the latter period of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. Now, that word rebels gives us some clue because the when, see, anytime you see a when in, in a prophecy, you need to stop and think because you should realize by now that prophecy skips around in time from, you know, verse to verse. So when you see a win, it's, it's giving you some important information. It says it's that this king is going to arise out of those four kingdoms, but now it's telling us when. And the when is when rebels have become completely wicked. Now, in, in the Bible, um, in the, I was reading out of the NIV, but in the uh, New American Standard, which is the version that ties to my Strong's, so I have to go there to, as a link to get to the Strong's Dictionary. That word is translated transgressors. Okay, so a lot of your, yeah, a lot of your, your, your uh, translations will say that. You have a handout on transgressors, and we need to take a look at that, because we need to understand who those rebels, who those transgressors are, in order to fix this time period. So you should have a handout that says transgressors at the top. There are actually two different words translated transgressors in the Bible. And they have completely different meanings. So it's important to know which one we're looking at. The one we're looking at is the one that I've put out on the top here for you that says it's pasha. It means to break away from authority. That is, to trespass, apostatize, quarrel. Offend, rebel, revolt, transgress. Okay. Can you repeat that? There's two different transgressors. There are two different Hebrew words that are translated into English as a single word, transgressor. Okay. Okay. So this is where we've got more color in the original language than we do in our language. And and when we talked about our rules of interpretation in the very first lesson, we said we're going to pay attention to those and try to understand behind the English word what the original meaning of the word we're really reading. So in this case, I've shown you that the, the word that's in Daniel means apostasy. That should raise all kind of red flags in your head. What happens? What causes the great tribulation? It is the apostasy. Okay? That's just all over the Bible about that's what causes that to happen. Is people fall, apostasy means falling away, rebelling against God. Now, the other word translated transgressors, which I did not put in here for you, but the other word means deceitful. It means a liar. It means covert. It means somebody who appears to be something that they're not. Okay. And I was okay. It, it the the other Hebrew word, and I actually have it in my notes here. Hang on, is bagad, bagad. Okay. It's it the transliteration in English would be b a w g a d with the accent on the last syllable, bagad. That's the one it's not, and that one means treacherous or deceitful. And very, uh, from time to time in a translation, it will be translated treacher, treacherous. But generally, it's translated transgressor. So when we're reading in English, we don't know which one they're talking about, okay? Unless we go and look. 
So one's kind of a person and one's kind of an action? One is, yeah, one is, one is, there are two types of people with two different types of sin. Two different types of sin. That's the thing to keep in mind. One means the sin of deceit. Okay? Treachery. Treachery and deceit. The other one is the sin of apostasy, of revolt against God, of falling away, willingly turning your back on God. That is the one that Israel and Judah got taken into captivity for. That is the one when God says you're running after idols. That is the one that brings on the, that, that is why we have a period called a great tribulation. It's, this is a biggie. Okay. And I was amazed when I pulled out everywhere in the Bible that that particular Hebrew word of, of that transgressor, the one in Daniel of apostasy was used. I could almost count them on one hand. Really? Yes. In fact, I could count them on one hand. It was used rarely and only in certain contexts. And that's why it merited a handout. <laughs> so this is a, a heart choice. So let's look at, what, at the context within which this particular word is used in Scripture. In Psalm 37, verse 37 through 39, it says, Mark the blameless man and behold the upright, for the man of peace will have a posterity, but transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off, but the salvation of the righteous is from God, from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. And we're going to go back and kind of look at some of these underlined places at the end. But here, the keynote is the transgressors are going to be destroyed while the righteous are going to be saved. Okay? That apostasy, this, all of these are the, the word that means apostasy. Apostasy, these are the people who rebel, who revolt. I didn't even pull out the others. I just wanted to make you aware of it. The next one, Psalm 51.10. You'll recognize part of this psalm. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. So here, the key takeaway is the transgressors will be taught and converted. Okay. Now, now we got two under our belt. Let's start thinking about this. We've seen two contexts. The the two underlined pieces are the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord in the first verse, and restore to me the joy of your salvation in the second verse. In both cases, the the transgressors are being contrasted with people who are saved. It's like the saved and the unsaved here. Okay, and you're starting to see. Context, And also in the second verse, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. What is the Great Commission? Go ye to all the world. That's right. Go ye into all the world. Preach the gospel. And do you know that in the Bible, I didn't pull the verse out, but in the Bible it says that after all the world has been preached to, then the end will come. Okay, and so here we're beginning to see some bringing into focus slowly that they're talking about salvation, the time of the end, you know, the things that are happening at the end. Let's look at the next one. Isaiah 1, verse 24 through 28. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares... Ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and will remove all your alloy. So there he's talking about burning out the impurities. And we know that that is the purpose of the tribulation. Okay. Then I will restore your judges as at first and your counselors as at the beginning After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. Does that sound like where we're living today? No. No. (laughs) Does that sound like the promises of the end time? Yes. (laughs) All right. 
But transgressors and sinners will be crushed together, and those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. So this is very pulls from things that we heard in that first verse. It's like we're going to come to a final reckoning, and certain things are going to happen to Jerusalem and to the saved, and certain things are going to happen to the unsaved. So keep in mind, I'm not like picking out certain scriptures. These are all of them. That use this word. Okay, so you're beginning. It really comes into focus um, that there is there's one in Isaiah 46, uh, verse eight. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn-minded who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay And I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel. Sounds like the last one, doesn't it? You know, it sounds like he's talking about, I underlined, I'm the God who declares the end from the beginning. From the beginning, he knows what the end will be and he tells us what it will be. Okay, I'm going to bring you salvation. I will save Zion and my glory will rest in Israel. Okay, that is the definition of the end time. Well, there's your bumper sticker. That's right. Isaiah 53:11. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify many. Oh, we recognize this phrase, don't we? As he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured him out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Who is that talking about? Jesus. That's right. And, he's, and it's, that particular verse is quoted by Jesus a couple of times in the New Testament with relation to his crucifixion. Um, in a, in, in the account of his crucifixion, it is also quoted uh, when they talk about the fact that he was hung between two thieves says that was a fulfillment of this prophecy that he was counted among the transgressors. So then the last verse is Hosea 14:1 that says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously, that we may present the fruit of our lips. And then God responds, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily, and he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them. But transgressors will stumble in them. We've seen seen that word stumble a couple of times with relation to the Jews stumbling over Christ, the cornerstone. Um, we have we have we see the underlined part in the middle of verse four and the beginning of verse five that says he he will heal their apostasy, love them freely, turn his anger away and become the dew to Israel. He will rest on them like dew. Isn't that a lovely thought? All of that dealing with. You know, the context being the time of the end, certainly not where we are now. There are a couple of unreal. There was one other passage that I didn't put in because it didn't. It, it was a slightly different form of of the word in English. But there's another one in Isaiah 48, 8 that has exactly similar context. OK. Um, and I didn't put it on the handout. Then the last one that I put on your handout was from James chapter two, verse eight. And and it. It is typical of a couple of other passages in the New Testament that use the Greek, corresponding Greek word for transgressor. 
that basically just talk about their 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 topic is law versus grace. Okay, how under the law everybody is a transgressor, but under grace we're all saved. And that wasn't, you know, the same mindset, feel or topic that this old these Old Testament passages had. All right. So I didn't I didn't copy them all down for you, but there was like three or four other New Testament ones. All right. So based on that, let's go back and take a fresh look at at the verse in Daniel. So we're looking at verses 22 and 23. Basically 23. In the latter part of their reign, meaning in the latter part of those, the reign of those four kingdoms, it said it, because in verse 22, it says those four horns don't re- represent kings in this particular instance. They represent kingdoms. All right. In the latter part of their reign, latter part of the reign of these kingdoms, when, a, when the transgressors have become completely wicked, some of the, some of the uh, translations say when the transgressors have run their full course. Okay. A stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. So let's look at our grid on uh, the second row. It says, the vision says this king comes out of one of the four kingdoms of the Greek empire. The interpretation gives us additional information that, the four king, that this king arises when the transgressors have run their course. Okay. So when I'm thinking about transgressors then I'm thinking about how that word is used in scripture and how I saw I at least felt like it was pretty clear that that was spoken of in terms of end times not you know the time of Israel in particular during the Greek Empire okay that is open to interpretation you know that's just what I felt when I read through those scriptures. So let's look at what, what we see. For Antiochus Epiphanes, he was the fifth king of the Seleucids. He was a king within the Greek Empire. So I put a check. Yes, he did rise out of the Greek Empire. But then I said, so let's say, if we just take as a supposition that this is talking about the period of time of the Greek Empire, the verse clearly says it, it, that this king arises in the latter period of that Greek empire, for, if that's how we're going to interpret it. But he didn't. He came up right in the middle of it. He was not at the end. Then let's look at the, so I put an X on that one. Bless you. On the Antichrist, if their rule, meaning if these kingdoms refer to the Gentile kingdoms in general, not just the Greek empire, then this, this prophecy could be telling us that this king comes from one of the four Greek geographic divisions. Okay. That, that could be what this is telling us. All of those were incorporated in the Roman Empire and still exist today. If you look at your little timeline in the purple part, Look at, the, look at the geographic divisions that were represented. Ptolemy was Egypt and Palestine. Do those exist today? Yes. The Seleucids are from Syria. Does that exist today? Yes. Cassander was from Greece and Macedonia. Does that exist today? Yes. Lysimachus was from Thrace or Asia Minor. Does that exist today? Yes. All right. Those kingdoms still exist. Don't you think that's kind of strange out of all the kingdoms that disappeared, that those still exist, (laughs) you know, and are identifiable today? So it is entirely possible that the Antichrist rises out of one of those four geographic divisions. The and I also put that this this verse in 22 and 23 in the interpretation could be the normal time compression that you do see in prophecy. Where when it says rise out of these kingdoms, it's talking about all those Gentile kingdoms okay, from that, that arose from that point forward. The question mark that I put said, you know, if he's going to talk about that, why didn't he say it arose, they arose out of the imperialist kingdom? That fourth one, okay, the Roman Empire, imperialist empire. And the only conclusion I could come there is that he it's trying to tell us either he's Greek in origin or comes from this particular subset of the imperialist kingdom. Okay. 
It's giving us some geographical information because that fourth kingdom is going to cover the whole world. All right. It's going to be different than the others. We may not be able to recognize it in particularly the same ways. So let's go on to um, row three. Now, in row three, we're going to talk about the rest of verse nine that says that this king comes forth. uh, uh, It's a rather small horn that grew exceedingly, exceedingly great. That definitely fits what we know about the Antichrist. Grows great towards the south, towards the east and towards the beautiful land. All right. The word translated beautiful is exactly the same word as the word glory used by the Lord to describe the promised land to Ezekiel. And this is in your scripture references for chapter eight. The beautiful land. Thus says the Lord God on the day when I chose Israel and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt. When I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord, your God. On that day, I swore to them to bring them out from the land of Egypt into a land I had selected for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. Okay, so here he talks about, this is God talking to Ezekiel saying, the day I brought them out of Egypt, I told them I was taking them to a land flowing with milk and honey, all right, which is the glory of all lands. That same word, that's obviously talking about the land of Canaan, the be- okay, Jerusalem, the give, the promised land, whatever you want to call it. That word glory is the exact same Hebrew word that's used here and is just translated in Daniel as beautiful land. All right. So from that, we can understand that he's talking about the promised land. Okay. So this king is going to... Come out of the west and grow south and east or the north and the west. He could come from the north and the west because he's going to grow south and east toward the promised land. Now, let's look at that. Does that fit Antiochus Epiphanes on the third row, row number three? Well, yeah. His, he was Greek, so he's coming out of the north and the west. He... His military focus was on Egypt in the south and on the eastern part of his kingdom, which is where he died, and on Palestine, the promised land. So that part definitely would fit with Antiochus Epiphanes. Does that fit with the Antichrist? Well, we don't know, but presumably so. If this is a prophecy of him, that's information. Okay, That's, That's information telling us that he starts somewhere north and west. His power base is somewhere north and west of the promised land. And he grows down that direction. Okay? So then on row four, we, we say, we look at verse 23. In verse 23, the interpretation which we've read a couple of times already, it says, A king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. Does that fit with Antiochus Epiphanes? Yes. Does that fit with the Antichrist? Yes. He's the only horn in Daniel's vision that had a mouth that boasted. Okay. He is definitely insolent. Okay. We know he's got to be filled with intrigue because he supplants, utterly uproots several kings before him. So that, def- that would fit both of them. The, the last part of, or in verse, the first part of verse 24 says, his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. Okay, this is that king. So, he's going to be mighty, but not by his own power. Well, for Antiochus Epiphanes, does that make any sense? I said no. Because Antiochus Epiphanes did everything in his own power. He scrapped and fought and, you know, defended every piece of territory he got. I, I couldn't find any way that you could say that was fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay. He wasn't helped out by anybody. He had to defend himself from everybody. But let's look at what that could mean or what we do know about the Antichrist. Look at 2 Thessalonians. This is in your scripture handouts. So let's just read the two pieces of Thessalonians that talk about the Antichrist. And then we're going to pick out a little piece of it. So we're going to start with 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 1. And we're going to pretty much read from verse 1 through verse 12. Skipping here and there. 
Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him. Okay, so it's talking about when Jesus comes back. And this is Paul writing a letter to the Thessalonians because they were worried they'd missed it. Okay, he didn't come so fast and they were worried they'd missed it. So he's writing to him saying, do not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. This is the Antichrist, okay? Same guy we're talking about. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And if we read on, it says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So that again marks the Antichrist right there at the end, just before Jesus comes the second time. Okay, The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. And in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. Now that's, that, just in and of itself, is a real good reason to be doing what we're doing now. Studying prophecy. Because a whole lot of people are going to be fooled when this Antichrist comes. Because he's not going to look evil. It's entirely possible he'll bring world peace. You know, He's not going to look bad. He's going to be doing signs, miracles, and wonders. And, and we need to understand how to tell the difference between him, how to recognize him, and tell the difference between him and somebody good, you know, from the Lord. So this says he deceives those who are perishing, and they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. It's pretty strong words. That's pretty strong words. Uh, you know, also, that's why it's real important to know the truth now. Yeah. And what you're hearing. And if you don't study the word, you're not going to know the truth. If you don't study the word, you're not going to know the truth. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Because you're not always fed all of the information. Right. Mm-mm on Sunday morning necessarily. You know, this just isn't where you're focusing. You can't do this kind of thing on Sunday morning. It's a different kind of a dialogue, all right, and a different message. This, this is a message to people who are already Christian. Many, many pastors are preaching to the people in the 80% in their congregation that are not yet believers. They're trying to save the believers. It's a, it's a mission, okay? It's not a feeding of meat to the body necessarily. We need to pay attention to this stuff. You know, it's going to be pretty hard for believers even if someone, especially with all of the turmoil in the world today, if someone comes along and um, brings world peace, you know, you still feel like you're being a believer yeah. um, and, um, and be seduced by that. Yeah. It would yeah. be very easy yeah. to see. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And applaud somebody who could do something like that. Right. Absolutely. My question is, and I guess it's, we won't know to get there, but uh, he's going to do all these miracles. And he's going to bring world peace and all that. But, uh, and he's, he's going to claim to be God. Yes. Not at the beginning. No, no right. not at the no. beginning. Right. You're going to get suckered into it. And then mm-hmm. I mean, we may <laughs> play that he's the Messiah probably. And, uh, you know. But that's not the way the scriptures say. I know, but people are not educated. We're not educated. You know? So, so how he comes into the world is going to have a lot to do. With that's that. right. That's I mean, right. I mean, we should be able to recognize. Hopefully, we'll be able to recognize. If if we keep, if we learn, and you don't have to worry. It's not. This is not intended to create anxiety. And really, Paul was trying to relieve their anxiety, not make it worse, because he's saying, if you know God, if you know Jesus. You will recognize that this is not it. <laughs> this is not the guy. All right. 
All right. It's, it's, but it's, However, mm-hmm. if you know Jesus, it's your obligation and responsibility to know the difference. Yes. To know the truth. Yes. So you have to have a dialogue. Yes. Mm-hmm. You have to have a dialogue on with Christ and God to know Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's the only way you really know the difference. That's right. And I think, in large part, it's we are preparing ourselves as leaders during those times. This is information we can pass to others who may not have spent the time studying. This is information we can pass to our children and our grandchildren who may not have spent the time. This is, we're really learning a lot about that time period that he comes and where its roots are. That time period's roots are way back here in the Greek Empire. Okay. So that's what this is about. So let's look at what um, we say in row five of our grid. Verse four, he's mighty, but not by his own power. We already know that really doesn't make sense with Antiochus Epiphanes. But we do know that makes sense with the Antichrist because it told us right there in verse nine that his power comes from Satan. Right there in in Thessalonians. It says his power. Where else could it come? It couldn't come from God. Okay. It could only come from Satan. Right. That's right. So let's look at row five. The the rest of verse 24 says, no, verse six. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. Now, he will destroy to an extraordinary degree. Does that fit Antiochus Epiphanes? Yeah. (laughs) He was one of the cruelest tyrants of all time. He was right up there with Hitler. He was a bad, bad guy. Okay. Um, Many, tens of thousands of people died at his hand. In in chapter 9, which we will get to next week, there is more information about the Antichrist. But there is a verse there that says the Antichrist is the one who makes desolate. Okay? And that word desolation is associated with the Antichrist in multiple places in Scripture. I didn't go there because we're going to go there later, all right, in a later lesson. But just, I, you can take that check mark on faith that I will show you all those Scriptures in a future lesson. Row 7, we finish up verse 24 and we start verse 25. Now, We're going to split up verse 25 in a bunch of ways. And so I want to read the whole verse first and then go back and we'll start parsing it out. So in in Daniel chapter 8, look in your Bible, verse 24 and 25, the end of verse 24. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. Okay, so there's a whole lot of information packed in there. First, let's pick out the part where it says he will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. And let's look at row seven and see does that fit. Well, does that fit Antiochus Epiphanes? Did he destroy many? Yes. Did he destroy them while they were at ease? Yes. He not only slaughtered the Jews wholesale, he invaded Egypt, took over, took their king captive, set himself up in his place. And just to start this all off, he went and assassinated his own brother, who presumably was at ease, fat, dumb and happy on his throne. Okay. So that definitely fits Antiochus Epiphanes. Does that fit the Antichrist? Destroying mighty, peop- mighty men and holy people and destroying many at ease. Absolutely. We can see that in chapter 7. He uprooted three kings before him. We know from chapter 7 that he's going to overcome and wear down the saints for a period of time. You know, that's not just wearing them down, making them tired. That's, we- that's wearing them down, killing them. Okay. It, it, it means we are in battle with him and he is winning. Okay. So definitely fits the Antichrist. So now let's look at row 8. And, and for row 8, we're going to go back up to verse 10 in Daniel. Verse 10. So this is part of the vision about the horn. Rather small. Oh, rather small. 
Verse 10, it grew up, the horn grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host and it removed the regular sacrifice from him. And then if we pick out the part of verse 25 in the interpretation that talks about this, it says, and he will magnify himself in his heart and he will even oppose the prince of princes. So let's look at our host of heaven handout. This was one that warranted a handout because it was pretty strange, controversial even. The host of heaven, this king is going to grow up to the host of heaven, cause some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth and be trampled. What in the world does that mean? Okay. You should have a handout, Host of Heaven. You had it from last week. It's there on the table also. It's, it's you're going to share that with us. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's look at where, and I, this is another one. I was astonished that it really wasn't used any more than it was. This is, we're not going to read every single um, verse in here. We're going to read through the captions and talk about what it says. And a couple of the verses we will read together. The first one is Deuteronomy 4.18, where it says, the host of heaven, and let's read this one. Beware not to lift your eyes to heaven and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them. Okay. So this is a warning to the Israelites in Deuteronomy right up front. Okay. That says the sun, the moon, and the stars, essentially a in the positive, all the host of heaven. Okay, So somehow the host of heaven are associated with the sun, the moon, and the stars. First, That's our first clue. Then in 2 Kings 22, verse 19, and also there's a, the same passage in 2 Chronicles. Micah sees a vision. And he sees the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him. On his right and on his left. Okay? So, just right there, he's not seeing the planets, the sun, the moon, and the stars all around the Lord. He's seeing the spiritual reality of the host of heaven. Okay? What these verses are going to show us is that there is a spiritual reality that the sun, the moon, and the stars that we see are just merely the physical shadow of. Okay? They're just... What we see. All right. But there is a spiritual significance. And that's why there was such a draw back in those ancient religions to worship them. Okay. There is a spiritual reality behind that. And God was warning them, do not worship. He doesn't want us to worship angels. He doesn't want us to worship spirits. He wants us to worship him. All right. So let's look at at what... At how this verse continues on. The Lord said. He's, so the, the only players in the room in this vision are the Lord and the spirits that are, uh, that are standing around him that it says are all the host of heaven. The Lord says, who will entice Ahab, who is a very wicked king. That's Jezebel's husband. Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead. And one said this while another said that. So you hear all the spirits are talking to each other. Okay. If they were just sun, moon, stars, planets, they're not talking to each other. Okay. And... And then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, the Lord said, you are to to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. And And so then Micah goes on and says, that's how this happened. And now all your prophets are lying to you, king. So you better not pay attention to him. Okay. So this is kind of interesting. Now let's look at Revelation. This is one of the few times when I did relent and put in a verse from Revelation because it was so important. (laughs) Okay. Revelation chapter 22, verse 15. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Okay. Second Peter one nineteen. Okay. Second <laughs> Peter one nineteen. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, 
to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. That's what we're studying prophecy. That's why we're studying. It's a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Who's that? Jesus. (laughs) Okay. But know this first of all. That no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Then, if you really want to blow your mind, look at the next one. In Isaiah 14, 3 through 13, this is a prophecy about Babylon. Okay? And it says in verse 3 and 4 that this is a taunt against the king of Babylon. And look what it says in verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of dawn. In verse 13, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. So there was a spiritual reality behind Babylon. Okay, it is referred to here as a star of the morning, just like Jesus referred to himself as a morning star. There was some very great spiritual goodness that Babylon was supposed to be. It, the significance of Babylon in scripture is nearly as great as the significance of Jerusalem. It's, if it had chosen otherwise, the greatness and the blessing to the world would have been overwhelming. But it didn't. It chose to exalt its. It was a bright morning star. Okay, it was there is a hierarchy, an echelon, okay, of spiritual reality. And this is showing us how if we hadn't already figured it out, how significant Babylon was. Okay, the spiritual reality. That's right. And and when we get to Revelation, we need to keep this in mind because Babylon is spoken of in, in its spiritual reality, not the physical place. Okay, so now let's look at Job 38. And in Job 38, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? This is God's response to Job. Okay, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And then skip down to verse 7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. This host of heaven, the morning stars, were there when God created the earth. They shouted for joy with the sons of God. Jeremiah 33. The host of heaven cannot be counted. They are so numerous, the host of heaven cannot be counted. Daniel chapter 4. You already actually read this verse. This is Nebuchadnezzar after he had been raised up from being a beast and had come back and repented before God. He's blessing and honoring and praising God. And in verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does, God does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Very clear in scripture. The host of heaven are spiritual beings that exist. They are referred to as sun, moon, and stars. And you see some very strange passages in the Bible about sun, moon, and stars. And stars falling to earth and it makes no sense. Okay, unless you understand these scriptures and understand there is a spiritual reality here. Isaiah 24 So it will, uh, verse 20, so it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of earth on earth. They will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and will be confined in prison. And after many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts will raise, will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before the elders. So this is referring to hosts of heaven who have set themselves up above God, rebelled against God. Clearly, these spirits have a will and a choice. Isaiah 34, 1. Draw near, O nations, to hear and listen, O peoples. And then it goes on to say, the Lord's indignation is against all the nations. I underline indignation because that's a a term that we recognize as having to do with the great tribulation. 
And it talks about how he's going to slaughter all the armies and corpses are just going to be covering the earth and the mountains will be drenched with blood. And verse four, and all the host of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one from withers from the fig tree. So these hosts of heaven are going to be subject to these same judgments and part of the tribulation that we are. Okay, or that when it happens. Zephaniah 1 verse 2. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. And it goes on, it's the men, the birds, the fish, the, you know, I'll cut off men, I'll cut off the inhabitants of Jerusalem, I'll cut off Baal, the idol, turn the page, the names of the idolatrous priests, and those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven. Okay? He's going to destroy and cut off the people who are bowing to these spirits. And then there's a whole bunch of of verses in Kings and, and in Jeremiah, Second Kings seventeen fifteen, Second Kings twenty one three, Second Kings twenty three four. There's a, another place in Second Chronicles that talk about the Israelites worshiping the host of heaven. Okay, and Jeremiah eight one is another place. Okay, so this is important to know, right? If you're reading Daniel. That when in verse 10, it says this king grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to follow the earth and trampled them down. We couple that with the knowledge that his power came from Satan. Okay. And we understand how that can happen. This we understand his connections in the spiritual world and how mighty this king must be, must become. That he not impresses the host of heaven who are standing there in the presence of God. To the point that he tempts them to revolt. Okay? And to fall away from God. And therefore end up being destroyed. He magnifies himself to be equal with the commander of hosts. Removes the regular sacrifice from him. Even opposes the prince of princes. For Antiochus Epiphanes... If you stick to the scriptural sense of what host of heaven means, it makes no sense that Antiochus Epiphanes rose up to the host of heaven and made him fall. Okay? He just, I don't see it. Okay? He did present himself as God in name and coinage. Okay? He saw himself as God. I don't think the host of heaven were particularly impressed. Okay? In the Antichrist, we know he speaks out against God according to chapter 7. We know, according to the verses in Second Thessalonians that we read, that he sets himself forth as God. And when we get to Daniel chapter 11, verse 37, it says he will not respect God because he will magnify himself above all. And then on, uh, let's go on to row 9 because that is uh, a similar kind of a, a thing having to do with the host of heaven. And we'll stop, stop after that. In verse 12, Daniel's vision says, Because of their sin, the host will be given over to them, and he will be able to do as he pleases and fling truth to the ground. Isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. And then in the interpretation, it says that this king will prosper and do his will and cause deceit to succeed. Okay, you think about this in terms of Antiochus Epiphanes, makes no sense. The host of heaven were not given over to him. Okay, we... Also, no, he could not do as he pleased. One of the reasons he couldn't come down and put the Jewish revolt down was because he was off putting down revolts elsewhere in his kingdom. People were revolting all over the place. Okay? He was just barely hanging on to his power. But the Antichrist, according to those verses we read in Thessalonians, is coming with all power and signs and lying wonders, with all deceit, so that those who do not know the truth will believe a lie. You know, he must be amazingly deceitful if he can deceive the hosts of heaven to influence them to fall. And that isn't the first. Satan, that's what Satan has been doing all this. Where do you think Satan's legions came from? He didn't create them. He had to have persuaded them. 